Welcome again. Another dive into the Word of God. And this week we're in James chapter 5. And we're going to cover verses 16 through to 18. Now we're talking about confession. Now I do have a confession to make. I said we're going to finish the book this week, but we're not. Well, let's start with our memory verse. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. All right, you ready? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be and complete, lacking nothing. I'll just pray and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for... All your goodness, we do pray that you will give us understanding. Lord, you tell us that spiritual things can only be understood by the Spirit revealing them to us. So we just pray that your Holy Spirit would do that. We would submit to you and realize that we are completely unable to comprehend the things of God without the Holy Spirit revealing them to us. So we just pray that you will do that for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So. Last week, we read how James encourages us to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And to help us to remember what we did last week, I've got some quotes, and this will help us get into what we're doing this week too. So concerning confession, the root form means literally to say the same thing. Hence, it means that in confession of sin, We agree to identify it by its true name and admit that it is sin. So it's not just, yeah, something I shouldn't have done. No, this is something that's awful. This is disgusting. It's foul. It's wrong. It's grievous to God. And it should be grievous to me. Another quote from Moffat. In this quote, he quotes a quote from the early church. It says, Now, in the early church, this was openly done as a rule, that is, confession, before the congregation. The earliest manual of the church practice prescribes, and this is a quote from one of the documents from the early church, you must confess your sins in church and not betake yourself to prayer with a bad conscience. Interesting, eh? You must confess your sins in church and not betake yourself to prayer with a bad conscience. I mean, we'll kind of find out why. I think you probably already know. If you've got a bad conscience, is God going to hear your prayer? And another one from David Guzik. Real, deep, genuine confession of sin has been a feature of every genuine awakening or revival in the past 250 years. But it isn't anything new, as demonstrated by the revival in Ephesus, recorded in Acts chapter 19, verses 17 to 20. It says, Many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. This was Christians getting right with God and open confession was part of it. So, the whole point there, the main emphasis, is that many who believed came confessing and telling their deeds. This was a Christian confessing what they were doing wrong and they weren't living the Christian life. Now, I want to read those verses in Acts 19, 17-20 and see what happened after they confessed and repented. The context here is the demonic man beating up the Jewish exorcists, that's it, the guys who were trying to, the Jewish people who were trying to exorcise demons. And the demon overcame them, beat them up, and they went out of the house naked and bleeding. And the words that the demon said was, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And this is what is written next. Acts 19, 17 to 20 says, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed, 
So the main point, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Will the word of the Lord grow if we have unconfessed sin? No. So, what did we learn last week? If we have secret sins and those sins remain secret, then they will always be our secret sins, right? We need to overcome the shame and condemnation that devil piles on us and in humility confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we will have victory over this sin. Now, think about a cancer. The cancer is hidden, but you have to go to the doctor because you'll have symptoms from your cancer, but the doctor will be able to show you, hang on, there's something wrong with you. There's a cancer in you, it's growing, and it's going to kill you. What does James 1.15 say? These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So if you want to have your own personal revival, or if we want to have our own personal revival, then we must confess our sins. And if we don't, and we are not wanting to give up our sin, then we will remain slaves to that sin. And I was just thinking, you know, the secret sin that we try and keep secret, it won't be a secret forever. It eventually will destroy us and it will become obvious. It will be exposed. So, Romans six fifteen to 16, it says, Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So, who's your master? <laughs> sin or God? Because if you submitted to sin, sin is your master. If you submitted to God, God is your master. And this is talking to Christians. So there's never going to be a revival, personal or otherwise, unless people are praying and confessing their sins. Why? Because we're not available for God to use us. God can't work through us. Now, in the scriptures, there's this whole idea of being a vessel of honor. So I want you to consider, you have a guest come around to your house and you pull a plate out of the cupboard and it's got dirt all over it. Are you going to present that to your guest? <laughs> no. What you'll do is you'll put the dog feet on that plate because you don't care. If it's dirty, the dog can use it. But you won't put you know, good feed on that plate and feed it to your guests. So if you think of us as a dish, if we're contaminated with sin, then God can't use us. We need to choose to turn away from this sin. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20-21 describes this. It says, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honour and some for dishonour. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And we can take the opposite of that, the opposite of verse 21. Therefore, if anyone does not cleanse himself from the latter, he will not be a vessel for for honour, he will not be sanctified and will not be useful for the Master. He will not be prepared for every good work. So as we've said before, power only comes through purity. It's real easy to get caught up just going through the motions of Christianity but not really experiencing the power of a life that is genuinely submitted to God. So what does it mean? What does it take to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit? It means to be submitted to God which means no sin separating us from God. It doesn't mean we become sinless, but as we sin, we confess and we remain in that pure relationship with God. We don't let that sin remain unconfessed. We can only have one master, sin or God. And so we need to choose, as Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. We need to be willing to give up every sin because any sin will keep you out of God's perfect will for your life. So let's read today's scripture, and I've called this The Effect of Sin and Confession on Our Prayer Life. So we're talking today mainly about prayer, and this is something that I struggle with. 
My prayer life is probably a part of my life which is the weakest link in my Christian walk. And as I was going through this, it just really hit me what one of the root causes of my lack of desire to pray might be. So James five sixteen to 18 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So in verse 16, the second part, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So the first part of the verse, which we covered last week, was confessing your sin. All right, now, the result of confessing our sin is we become righteous and therefore we have a energized and effective prayer life. So instead of being apathetic and lethargic in our Christian walk because of the effect of sin in our lives, it makes us hard and dull to the voice of God. We become enthused or energized by God, filled with the Holy Spirit as we submit to God and therefore truly motivated and empowered by God to live the Christian life. And Philippians 2.13 is the verse I keep going back to personally. I've got it from the Amplified Version here. It says, Not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectively at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and desire both to will and to work for his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. The key point there, he's effectively at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and desire. So if we're struggling in a part of our life, whether it be reading the word, prayer, fellowship, witnessing, this is where we need to come back to. God is the one who works in us. If we're not energized in our Christian walk, if we're not motivated to do these things, why not? So, prayer. Keep in mind that one of the most important parts of a Christian walk is their prayer life. Yeah, it's a bit that people don't see. And for me personally, there are times in my life when prayer has become mundane and a bit of a drag. And, you know, you force yourself to do it. You go through the routine each morning. Sometimes your Bible reading can be like that too. You know, you force yourself to do it. You go through the routine. And sometimes that's just a discipline that we need, but sometimes there's a reason why we're not enjoying it. And so we have to examine our hearts and find out why. Because if we are being motivated to do what God wants us to do, then it's something we should be looking forward to, something you really enjoy doing. I don't know about you, but when you're walking with the Lord and you're praying, the time just disappears. And you just, you, oh, is that prayer meeting fit? Oh, really? It's 10 o'clock on a Friday night, you know? Did we really pray for an hour and a, you know, a full hour or an hour and a half, whatever it was? But sometimes it's like, when's this prayer going to finish? And so that change or that difference is in us, it's in our hearts. It's, are we submitted to God or not? Now, what does prayer do? Just a reminder about prayer. Prayer doesn't just change our circumstances, just doesn't change what we're praying for or the people we're praying for, but it also changes us. If we're having problems with a person, we're unable, or they've hurt us, and we're struggling to forgive, if we pray for our enemy, then God will give us the strength to love our enemy. And so basically, as we pray for our enemy, it's not just our enemy who's being blessed, but it's us too. Our will, desires, and attitude towards others are conformed to God's as we submit to God and pray according to his will. So, just want you to remember that sin robs us of our zeal and enthusiasm for the things of God. You know, reading the word, prayer and fellowship, and also evangelism. You've probably heard the phrase, sin will keep you from reading the Bible, and reading the Bible will keep you from sin. Well, that applies to prayer and fellowship as well. And evangelism, I should have put that in there as well. So if we're lacking in desire or motivation for any of these things, we should be asking God to reveal any sin 
or sinful attitude that we may not be aware of. And once we become aware of the sin, we need to confess and forsake that sin so we continue to progress and mature in our Christian walk. So a little bit of time talking about sin and the different forms it can take. So firstly, it can be an attitude. It's not something you do at all. It's just something that's in your heart. It's an attitude. For example, self-righteousness, pride, materialism, greed, idolatry, unforgiveness, and the sin of fear, doubt, or unbelief. Then, regarding the things that we do or don't do, there's two types of sin here. There's sins of commission. So commission are things that we do. Okay, So the wrong things that we choose to do, and examples of these sins of commission, the things we choose to do, are lying, stealing, gossiping, swearing, immodesty, and all that kind of thing. And the other type of sin which is related to what we do or don't do are called sins of omission. And this is where we choose not to do the things that we know we should do. And James 4.17 refers to this. It says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now what are some of these sins of omission? These are not so obvious in our Christian walk. But we need to be aware of them. Prayerlessness. Neglect of the word of God. Failure to help others when we know that we should and failure to speak or witness when we are called by God to do so, and also failure to fellowship. God calls us to fellowship. So why am I saying this about sin? Well, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint or to identify the sin that could be affecting us in our relationship with God. Again, it could be an attitude, something we are doing wrong, or something we're not doing right. And something that helps me, and something I need to do more of, is pray prayers from the Psalms. For example, Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So we're all on this road together. We all struggle. We all fall. But God has given us these promises. And all we need to do, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we want to be effective in the kingdom of God, if we want to rid ourselves of spiritual lethargy and have our own personal revival, if I can use that, if we want to be filled with the Spirit and become enthusiastic and walk with God, then we must be willing to deal with our sin. We must be willing to humble ourselves and ask God to show us if there is sin in our lives that either we don't know about or we haven't confessed. Then we must be further willing, as we learned in the previous weeks, to further humble ourselves and confess that sin to other believers and be prayed for. So what's the key thing here? Purity equals power. Right? Purity equals power. If we are pure in our walk with God, then we will experience power in our walk. Here's an example of the sin of unbelief. This is an attitude. This is something you can't see. It's not something you do or don't do. It's a sin of unbelief. And how it stopped the disciples from being effective in their ministry. So this is Matthew 17, 19 to 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast the demon out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there. And it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So the disciples had a sin in their lives. Their sin was what? The sin of unbelief, yeah. And they couldn't do what the Father had asked them to do because of their unbelief. So there's many powerful enemies that we battle against, and one of them is sin, okay? Of course, there's a devil and there's a world. Our human desires being the source of our sin. So to overcome and have victory, we must choose to engage and fight the spiritual battle. So if we do nothing, we're laying down, we're just accepting defeat. We're going to be ineffective in the kingdom of God. So now I'm going to read James 5.16 in three different versions. And again, this describes the result of having an unhindered or pure relationship with God. 
and the effect on our prayer life. So from the New Living Translation, it says, The earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and produces wonderful results. In the Amplified, it says, The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. And the New King James says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So I'm going to break this down into its three parts. What it means to be a righteous man, what it means to avail much, and what is effective, fervent prayer. So let's start with what it means to be a righteous man. So in the Greek, the word righteous means upright, fair, just, righteous, innocent, to be put right with, honest, correct, and observant of right. So, do you guys know that there's more than one form of righteousness? That I can be both righteous and unrighteous at the same time? That's a riddle, isn't it? How can I be righteous and unrighteous at the same time? Hmm. Okay, let's explain. When I am born again, all my sins are taken away. I have right standing with God forever and ever and ever. So basically, it doesn't matter what I do practically. Positionally, I am right with God. And God sees me as being where? I am in Christ. God sees me as being in Christ, it says in Colossians. So I've called this positional righteousness. It's basically how God sees me. So nothing we can do can change or take away this right standing we have before God. Again, this positional righteousness is our position in Christ we received after asking him to forgive us of our sins. It has nothing to do with how obedient we are once we are saved. And Romans 5, 20, 21 clearly explains that there is no sin too great that God can't or won't forgive. So I just want us to take comfort in this promise that God's grace is more than sufficient to cover any and all sins a believer may commit after they are saved. So let's read those verses in Romans 5, 20-21, talking about our positional righteousness. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God. That means we're innocent, yeah? Declared innocent in his court and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we have to be careful here when we talk about this kind of grace. It's true. No one can take away our positional righteousness. But what happens if we sin? Is God going to keep forgiving us? Yeah, he will. But there's a warning here, okay? Why? If we continue to sin, sin will hurt us, hurt others, and hurt God. And basically, to summarize what Romans 6 says, it's stupid to sin now that God has given us the power not to. (laughs) All right? Why would you live a life that is going to destroy you, destroy the people around you, and really grieve God? And God has given you the power to escape that life, to escape the corruption that is caused by human desires, you know? As it says in 2 Peter chapter 1. So, yes, grace, abundant grace. But there are practical consequences to our sin. Sinning as a Christian will not keep you from heaven, but it will keep you from experiencing relationship with God. You'll be in the family, but you'll be a difficult child. (laughs) And you'll have a difficult life. So we've talked about positional righteousness. That's how God sees us. God the Father sees us as being in Christ. So when Satan accuses us, Jesus says, well, that sin's paid for. He's clean. But now we're going to talk about what I call practical righteousness. And this refers to the practical condition of our relationship with God. 
So we can ask ourselves the following questions. All right. Now, before we ask these questions, just remind ourselves that in God's eyes, we are perfectly righteous, yeah? But now we're looking at our relationship with God on a practical level. So here are the questions we're going to ask. Is my love for and faith in God strong or weak right now? How submitted am I to God and his will right now? Is there any sin in my life that I'm not willing to confess and forsake right now? Am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength? Am I enjoying prayer, the word and fellowship and am I motivated to do those things? So to illustrate this, I'm going to use the example of marriage. How we can have a positional qualification, if you want to call it that, of a relationship, a marriage. But practically, my life can be very unhappy. So I could be fighting with my wife. My practical relationship with my wife could be described as broken, weak, or even loveless. However, positionally, I'm still her husband and we are still married. You see how that can work? We are still part of the same family. So in the same way, even though we have been adopted into God's family and have positionally received right standing with God, practically our relationship with God can be in tatters. It can be weak, broken, or even loveless. So what is James referring to when he says, of a righteous man, the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much? Well, what kind of righteousness do you think he's talking about here? The positional righteousness or the practical righteousness? Well, let's read Isaiah 59 verse 2. It says, It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. So we can apply this two ways. Firstly, this applies to the unbeliever. The unbeliever does not have positional or practical righteousness before God because they've never been forgiven, and therefore their sins continue to keep them eternally separated from God. If they die in their sin, that's it. Okay, Your sins have cut you off from God. We're born in that condition. But the context of this verse is in relation to God's people, the people of Israel. The believer has been forgiven, and so has received position of righteousness. However, like in Israel at this time, their sins had practically separated them from God. Because they are sinning and have not repented, God won't hear their prayers. So they were in trouble and they were praying to God for help. Did God answer? No. He's not going to answer until they repent. I'm sure the people in Jerusalem when King Nebuchadnezzar were praying that God said, no way, I'm not answering those prayers because you are refusing to repent. There's judgment coming for you. Because consequences for your sin. God never abandoned them as his chosen people, but he did discipline them quite severely. And another example of how sin can hinder our prayers is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, referring to how the husband should treat his wife, treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. So here, Peter's referring to marriage and how the husband treats his wife. If the husband is sinning by not treating his wife in the way that God intends him to, that the God commands him to, then his prayers are hindered. God will not hear the prayers of the sinning husband. And you can turn that around and say the sinning wife also. So this is really important for us to understand if our relationship with God is broken if sin has made it so we're not practically righteous before God if there's unconfessed sin then our prayers will be hindered why? because our hearts are hard we have embraced sin somewhere in our lives and we are no longer in submission to God it is not until we have confessed and repented that we restore that practical right relationship with God that we will be practically righteous so now we move on to the next part of that verse, it says to avail much. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. So there's two words here in the Greek, avail much. So the first one we look at is avail, and that means to be strong, powerful, able, mighty, have strength, be capable, be effective, 
be able to do something and be able to prevail. And the Greek word translated much, it just means much. <laughs> Many, extensive, great and abundant. So when you put these words together, the effects or the result of a righteous man praying effectively and fervently are not just availing or powerful or strong, but they avail much. They are very powerful, exceedingly strong, very capable and abundantly prevailing. So James is emphasizing the power and strength that results from a righteous man who prays effectively. And there's a quote from Meyer, and he's talking about John Knox. I don't know if you know who John Knox is, a very strong man of God back in the day. And it says this, It was so with John Knox, whose prayers were more dreaded by Mary of Scots than the armies of Philip. Mary of Scots was a queen, and she was more afraid of the prayers of this Christian, this man of God who was walking with the Lord, than she was by her enemy army. So basically, when James is talking about righteousness, the prayers of a righteous man, is he talking about practical righteousness or positional righteousness? Practical, yeah. We need to be walking with the Lord for our prayers to be effective. Now, the last part, or actually the first part of that verse, is effective and fervent prayer. What does this mean? What is effective and fervent prayer? And this is what really hit me. So, effective and fervent. It's actually one word in the Greek, and it's energio. Sound familiar? Energio? What do you think that word is in English? Energetic or energized, yeah. So it means effective, working, to be at work, to be active, to put into action, functional, operational, productive. We've been energized, we've been made productive, operational. So who is it that energizes us? Well, let's find out. I'm going to read some verses out that use the same word and show that it is God who energizes us or gives us the energy, enthusiasm, empowerment, motivation, capability to do his will. So Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works, Greek, energio, in us. The power that makes us operational, the power that makes us able. Philippians 2.13 For God is working, Greek energio, in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Notice it's both the motivation and the capability. And Colossians 1.29 To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works, Greek energio, in me mightily. So, is it possible to live the Christian life on your own strength? No, it's impossible, isn't it? Our sinful nature cannot accomplish the things of God. What God asks us to do is impossible to achieve by our own efforts, by the efforts of our sinful nature. So, James is making the point that our prayer life is no different. For our prayer life to be effective, it must be energized, it must be made operational it must be motivated guided empowered by god and that's what james is saying here the prayer that avails much or is powerful is a prayer that is energized motivated and guided by god so what does this look like well it's the holy spirit that helps us paul tells us in romans 8 what our weaknesses are and our limitations are and why we need the help of the holy spirit when we pray so i'm going to read romans 8 26 from the amplified version it says so too the Holy Spirit comes to our aid and bears us up in our weakness. For we do not know what prayer to offer, nor how to offer it worthily as we ought. So, what two things don't we know or can't we do if we're not walking in the Spirit, if we're not submitted to God? Firstly, we don't know what to pray for. And secondly, we don't know how to pray it. We're in a pretty bad place if we're not walking with God, right? We are too weak to know what to pray for and how to pray for those things. But the Spirit himself goes to meet our supplication and pleads in our behalf with unspeakable yearnings and groanings too deep for utterance. 
And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is in the mind of the Holy Spirit, what his intent is, because the Spirit intercedes and pleads before God in or on behalf of the saints, according to and in harmony with God's will. So when we are praying and being led by the Spirit, he's guiding us to pray for things which are in line with God's will. And he's showing us how to pray, the attitude that we should have to pray those prayers, the right motivation, the right intent. And that's really important because it's only by the Spirit interceding and praying on our behalf and showing us what to pray that we are praying in God's will. And David Guzik has a quote, The Holy Spirit's help in intersection in intercession is perfect because he searches the hearts of those whom he helps. He is able to guide our prayers according to the will of God. So he knows what we're trying to say. We might not be able to articulate it, but he knows what we're trying to say. He's putting the desires, those ideas to pray for, those people to pray for in our heart, and he tells us basically what to pray as we're led by him. Our prayers are guided according to the will of God. So let's do a little summary here, the summary for effective prayer. One, I must be righteous in thought, word, and deed, fully submitted to God. How? I must submit to God's authority over my life by confessing and forsaking all sin. What did Romans say? If sin is my master, then God isn't. Yeah. If God is my master, then sin isn't. It's one or the other. Romans 6.16 Don't you realize that you become the slave of whoever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Notice that? If you choose to obey God, if you submit to God, it will lead to righteous living. And James, we read this a few weeks ago, James shows us how to submit to God by confessing and repenting of our sin. In James 4, verses 7 to 11, it says, So humble yourselves before, that means submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. So how often do you think we need to do this? Every time we sin, right? There needs to be genuine heartfelt repentance. A real turning away from and a real hatred of the sin. So the first point there was, I must be righteous in thought, word and deed, fully submitted to God. Now, secondly, the second point is, only when I am submitted to God will my prayer life be motivated and guided by the Holy Spirit. An example of this, Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled and guided by the Spirit. Then you will certainly not gratify the cravings and desires of the flesh of human nature without God. So that's Galatians 5.16 for the Amplified Version. I'll read it again. But I say, walk and live habitually in the Holy Spirit, responsive to and controlled and guided by the Spirit. Then you will certainly not gratify the cravings and desires of the flesh, of human nature, without God. Again, purity equals power. Once I make the decision to please God and not myself, then I will experience his power. Now the third one is only prayers initiated or motivated and guided by God will be answered by God. So because a righteous person's prayers are directed and motivated by God, they will always be according to his will, and therefore God will answer them. That's what powerful prayer is. It's praying according to God's will, and God saying, yep, I asked you to pray for that. I put the desire in your heart to pray for that, and now you've prayed it, now I'm going to answer it. Now, are those prayers answered instantly? No. Okay, it might be in the will of God, but it might be for down the track. God will 
answer those prayers in his own time. As we learn in Bible study, it's according to his authority. The timing is in his authority, not ours. So we're faithful to pray. He's faithful to answer when the time is right. Now, on the other hand, if we reverse this, if a man or woman is not fully submitted to God, then they will not be energized, helped, motivated, and guided by the Holy Spirit, which means that their prayers will not be according to the will of God. So, if our prayers are not prayed according to the will of God, both in content and intent, that is our motivation. Because remember, if it's selfish, you might pray the right thing with the wrong motive, then they're not going to be answered. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but you pray and it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. It just feels like God's not answering your prayers. I felt that sometimes. Why do I need to pray? Well, God will always hear a prayer of repentance. And I recommend, I'm not going to go through it now, but I recommend that you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. They're both excellent examples of David's prayers of repentance and confession. So if you're not sure what to pray when you're repenting, you're not sure what it means, go to those Psalms, Psalms 32 and 51, and you'll see David confessing and repenting and coming back into a relationship with God, submitting to God. And I'll just read the verse again. It's James 5, 16, the second half. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we could say the energized prayer of a righteous man is powerful and strong. The energized prayer of a righteous man is powerful and strong. That's my way of saying it. Energized by the Holy Spirit. Made operational. Made capable by the Holy Spirit. That kind of prayer, the prayer that is now operational and according to God's will, is powerful and strong. So now we go on to James 5, 17 and 18. And here we have the example of Elijah, and he's an example of answered prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So James is referring back to the story of Elijah. So let's quickly go back, and we'll just read a couple of verses to see what James is referring to, so we understand the context. So I'm going to read selected verses from 1 Kings 17 and 18. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. And guess what? It didn't rain for three and a half years. Chapter 18, verse 1. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before King Ahab. Now, I'm not going to read it, but you have this big confrontation between the 450 priests of Baal and Elijah. And the competition was, whose God is really God? The real God will send fire down from heaven and burn up the sacrifice, the offering. Of course, the prophets of Baal couldn't do it. Their God wasn't the real God. But Elijah's God, our God, he's the real God. And when Elijah prayed, what happened? Fire came down from heaven, burnt up the sacrifice, burnt up the wood, burnt up the rocks, and burnt up the water that Elijah flooded the area with. (laughs) i go from verse 36. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Now Elijah is speaking by faith here because it hasn't rained yet, right? There's not a cloud in the sky, as we're going to find. 
So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. It's the attitude of submission. Then he said to his servant, Go and look out toward the sea. Then the servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, Hurry to Ahab and tell him, Climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. And soon the sky was black with clouds. The heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked in his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. So, how many times did Elijah have to pray? Seven times, yeah. Or at least he sent his servant seven times to go and look. So, Elijah was praying according to the will of God, but still he had to be persevering in his prayer. Okay, so I don't want to give you a false expectation here that if you're praying the will of God that you get instant answers to your prayers. Remember, God can say yes, no, or wait. And he wants us to continue to trust him. As Elijah keeps on praying, his faith is building. He's getting stronger. I'll read those verses in James again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So this phrase here, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. For me, this is just wonderful. It's so comforting. All right. If you take the time to read through Elijah's life in 1 Kings, you will find that he often doubted, he was fearful, he was lonely, and he was weak. One day he was on top of the world, the next day he's down the dumps and depressed. You know, when he got back to Jezreel after, you know, being the spirit upon him and running ahead of Ahab's chariot, Jezebel goes, uh, something like this, oh, by the power of the gods, if you're not dead by tomorrow, then, you know, something, something. And Elijah, oh no, this woman's going to get me. And he runs and he's all depressed and he's completely spiritually smashed. He's out of it. He says, God, I don't want anything more to do with this. I've finished. Don't use me anymore. And God has to really work with him to bring him back. He went from a real high to a real low. He just took his eyes off the Lord for a second. He doubted. You know, he could stand up to the 450 prophets of Baal, but one woman was his undoing. You know, this threat from this woman, Jezebel. So, He's a man with a nature like ours. He's human. But when he submitted to God and in tune with God, praying as God directed him to pray, he had amazing results to his prayers. He could even call down fire from heaven and stop and start the rain. That's God's will for us to have the same kind of power in our prayers. Maybe not to call down fire, I hope. But God wants us to pray with all the authority of heaven behind us. And you might think, whoa, but that's what Jesus says. In John 16, 23 and 24, And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So we're children of God. We've got to be careful in talking about this, but the authority that we have as sons, is real. We have access to the Father. Okay, We're kings and priests. And we don't use this authority for our own benefit. That's selfish and that's not going to work. And that's how it is misused in the church, unfortunately. However, like Elijah exercised God's authority over the prophets of Baal, so can we in our circumstances. It says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. So we have this promise. 
So he prayed earnestly. Literally, this is prayed with prayer. So it's a Hebrewism or Hebraism. It's like a double. I looked up the Greek word and it's like the same word, but one's a noun, one's a verb. And it's literally prayed with prayer. It's a Hebrew way of saying that he prayed earnestly with conviction. You know, we saw Elijah, his head between his knees. He was praying earnestly with conviction, with motivation. So the lesson for us here, when we pray, when the Holy Spirit prompts us to pray, we need to be fully committed. We need to respond fully. We need to give everything we have. Prayer is hard work. It's tiring. Our flesh hates it when we pray. There will always be distractions. To overcome all these fleshly difficulties, we need to be motivated and disciplined. Our hearts must be in it. We need to truly care for the people we are praying for. So it's going to take hard work. Be ready to be disciplined. Be ready to get down on your knees if you need to. Do whatever it takes to prioritize that so you're not distracted, so you are giving all to your prayer. So I'm just going to read those verses again, and then we're just about done. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And finish with the application, how I restated the James 5.16 verse, the energized prayer of a righteous man is powerful and strong. And I've got the three points here. If I submit to God by confessing my sin, I will be righteous. Practically righteous. I won't be controlled by sin. Two, if I am righteous, then I will be guided and motivated by the Holy Spirit. Three, if my prayers are guided and motivated by the Holy Spirit, they will be according to God's will and so will be answered by God in his perfect timing. So that's basically the main point of today's message. It's if we want to be effective in our prayer, we need to first be righteous, which means we need to confess and forsake all sin and humble ourselves before God, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And then we are filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, and the Spirit shows us what we should be praying. And it's not done usually in a supernatural way where you feel something, I believe. I think it's just a very natural thing where you start praying and the Spirit will just lead you in what you should pray. So let's pray. Father, if there's anything in us which is causing us to not be experiencing this kind of prayer life, this kind of walk with you that we should be having, I pray that we will confess that and forsake that sin, and ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us. I pray that, that could be a normal part of our fellowship, is asking for prayer, asking for help to live the Christian life, because we all need it. It's not a case of, oh, sometimes we don't, we always do, and sometimes more than others. So help us to be willing to ask, help us to be willing to be real and genuine, and Lord, to be humble to make you the God of our life and not allow sin to rule us. Lord, we want to be powerful in our prayers. We want to be strong. We want our prayers to be guided and led by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the Holy Spirit, and or the Holy Spirit to give us that motivation so we can pray according to your will and we can be effective in your kingdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us and show us if there's anything in us that offends you and Lord, that you will reveal to us the way that leads to life. Show us the truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.